There are lots of triathlon podcasts out there, and this is not one of them, even though it's with a triathlete who specialises in long-distance and extreme races. Sean McFarlane was a lawyer, but took the huge decision to gradually become a full-time athlete, and that is part of the adventure we explore in this podcast. Sean talks about the business of working with sponsors, magazines, other companies, plus devising a Trans-Scotland challenge that sounds truly epic. We start with an adventure that did not go remotely to plan, his first Ironman race. Yeah, well, I was living in Sweden. I lived in Sweden in 2004-2005 and went there with a bit of a triathlon background, but really just sort of weekend warrior stuff, doing sprint triathlons. And Then I met very quickly in Sweden, I met a triathlon club, a large club in Gothenburg, who were mainly a long-distance club. Uh, so I got involved with them and became very good friends with Ted Ose, who was their best triathlete. Uh, he was sort of the top Ironman in Sweden at the time. And we actually trained together um, a little bit. He's obviously a lot better than me, so I was at the back behind him a lot. Um, but I kind of got caught up in things, and I entered my first ever Ironman, uh, and that was 2005, and it was in Kalmar in Sweden. And it didn't quite go according to plan. It was a big thing for me. I remember October in the year before I entered it. That was when I first made the decision to enter the race, so, you know, nine months beforehand and I knew then it was going to be life-changing because I knew the way that my life had changed in terms of more training and a sort of longer term plan I thought this is what I want to do I want to do more of this and it's not just a sort of one-off year event I'll do this is going to be part of a lifestyle fundamental lifestyle change um so that was great and I was under Ted's wing and we went to Kalmar in August and I was I was in good shape Ted was in fantastic shape uh, obviously and it was it was okay. The swim swimming's not my strongest at all, but it was okay. Uh, into the bike felt great. Thirty k in, I got a puncher, and I'd got I'd, I'd actually got Ted's old race bike and fancy carbon wheels, and it was a case it, it was a question of all the gear and no idea, because I punctured, and I couldn't fix it because the valve extender wouldn't go through the rim. Um, it was a slight technical thing, and I on my replacement what we call tubular tire it, it, it just wouldn't go through and i thought what can i do here uh and basically there was a guy patrolling the course from the club who was sort of looking after the club members and he came to me and he's a very positive guy and he said he quite quickly said you're stuffed uh but i said to him look i'm finishing this race so there's no way that i'm not finishing this race and I had to wait at the top end of the course for uh, three hours. And about an hour in, um, in fact, less than that, probably half an hour in, I could see Ted coming in for his second lap in the lead with lead motorcycles and the TV camera. And I thought to myself, I don't want him to see me because I don't want him to be put in any way distracted by his performance, uh, by seeing me and, and affecting his performance. So I crawled into the bushes <laughs> with, my, with my punctured fancy uh, triathlon bike uh, and, and a very skimpy tri suit and sat underneath a tree in what was can only be described as Scottish weather, very sort of damp, and there was lots of midges. And I remember thinking, this is not how I thought my first ever Ironman race would go. And Ted came through on his second lap, came through on his third lap, still in the leads. And three hours later, I got a wheel. I, I, after several attempts to do other things, this, this chap from the triathlon club came to me actually with a front wheel and said go he'd actually borrowed a front wheel from a competitor 
um, who'd actually pulled out the race. So I went and I was last at that point in a field of 600 people. I was last on the bike by at least one lap, so 60k off the, off, off the second last person. And you have to say that on an Ironman, there there will be some very slow people. You'll have people like me doing it who are exceptionally slow. So for you to be at the back end there is really not where you wanted to be. No, not at all, not at all. And when I came in to do my second lap uh, and then head out on the third lap, the uh, Marshall motorcycle sped after me and said, no, you must be mistaken, you must have finished the bike course. I told them what had happened, and they all looked at me and said, well, good luck, on you go. And then I got to the 30K mark at the far away. It was basically 180 kilometers, three laps of 60K. So when I got to the 30K turnaround point, they'd actually closed all the aid stations, and everything had gone. So I was on my own. I came in. Uh, I, I, I came in off the bike. They'd shut up the run course about an hour before that. But uh, I told the... Uh, I told the marshals and uh, they said, no, okay, that's fine. You can carry on. And the announcer gave me a big, uh, a huge big cheer and everything. So I was running at that point, probably 10K in last position. And then eventually, uh, after actually not too long, because I felt pretty good, I got into the back of the field. And it wasn't at all what I'd expected. Ted, I think, was almost finished. I think I think, I think he had finished at that point. He probably had a, a share and a pizza by then. Um, but I was seeing the real people in these races. I'd, I'd been caught up, obviously, in the build-up to it with Ted and some other people from the club who were doing well. But I saw people that were doing the race, Simon, and it was, honestly, even talking about it now, 15 years later, it's it was incredible. Uh, there was one guy who, who I went to see all, um, in later races in Sweden. I, 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 I always saw this guy, and a huge guy, massive uh, with a very odd outfit on, and obviously just a local Kalmar person who, that was his thing. Every year he did the Ironman. But he was doing the first lap of the run, hardly moving, um, and was just not in a good place, I don't think, but he was doing it. And it was incredible. There was one other person who kept actually falling over at points in front of me. Uh, and I thought they had some problem, but they were just exhausted. And it was amazing. It was really amazing, and it really taught me that, you know, this is not about you know, for the vast majority of people, it's not about winning. It's not about placing. It's about taking part. And it was a real celebration of these people's lives that they could just come and do an Ironman. And I was so impressed by it. Um, I went back the following year to do the Ironman again. And that time I didn't punch her and I, I, I had an okay race. I, and I, I came back, had my shower, had my pizza, all that. And I made a point with Ted of going out onto the course and it was in the evening, it was getting dark. Mm. And I, I saw the same people that I'd seen from the year before. Uh, and there they were, you know, the same characters, the same tri suits, the same odd shapes. And uh, it was great to see that. So that was at the start of uh, my Iron Man. Because cause they say, <laughs> yeah, they, they say at, the, at the Iron Man that because they've got to finish by, by midnight usually, that's usually the cutoff. And that last hour, the hour, 11, 11 p.m. to midnight, is. is a very very special time because yes you might get people who are who are doing it because they do it every year just for a thing to do but you get other people for whom that's going to be their one and done and that's the time that they are going through that tape and the announcers calling you are an iron man calling out their name <laughs> and it's it's and they're they're in floods of tears and they've had to stop them letting the kids go down and it is it is quite a thing um you know the you can laugh all you like about Iron Man as a brand and Chinese owned and all that kind of thing, but actually, for the people who go through it as a as an as an endurance thing for them to do, it's quite a moment in in their lives and and a moment in your life as well that that was 
that was really quite different, wasn't it? It was different to theirs. And, and, and I just wonder, when did you, and this is a question I ask a lot of people, how and when did you discover that you were actually quite good at this? Uh, well, I discovered that I was quite good at it when I changed from sort of pure Ironman racing uh, and, and effectively what we call flat course to the more extreme stuff. Um, that was when I discovered that I had a chance of getting towards the pointy end of these races. Right, um, just just roll back a second, Sean. Just explain to most people who don't know Ironman to an extreme triathlon and the kind of distances we're talking about here. Well, Ironman, fairly, well, very set distances, a 3.8k swim, 180-kilometer bike, and then uh, a marathon at the end of it all. Um, that's and the and standard. it's usually, it's not that hilly, although the hilly courses are tend to be the ones that people know about, like Lanzarote, and, and they're held in a kind of certain extreme, whereas flat ones, perhaps like Texas, are thought of the ones, or Barcelona ones you go to to get a, get a good time. Yeah, exactly. The courses do vary. Uh, the, the, um, the one consistent thing, obviously, is that the run would be on tarmac or something very close to that. Uh, it wouldn't be an off-road run as such. But the bike courses can vary in, as you say, uh, in uh, how flat they are, how technical they are. Um, and there is quite a big sort of variation there. And very often the often the bike courses will be one or as you've said there in sweden three laps sorry two or three laps um uh, partly so they don't have to put out as many aid stations because there are lots of aid stations as you go along and it's all quite slick and you throw your bottle as you come in and you pick up another one on the fly and you can go for either sort of energy product or water and the runs are almost always laps as well um the one i did was in in um in holland in maastricht and we went four times around and they all had it was brilliant because they all had they had street parties in every little district that we went into <laughs> and and over the course of the day they drunk the dutch got more and more drunk um and so, so my I, I had a fantastic experience with what, laughing at these people getting drunk but but what you're talking about so that's a very contained uh unit of an event Let's just explain an extreme try because, as you say, that's where you discovered your niche. Yeah, an extreme triathlon is roughly the same distances. I mean, they have a uh, they have quite a a rustic format to them in terms of uh, often the distances aren't the same from one year to the next because the, the race organisers put the boy in a different place. Uh, so they tend to be a bit more rough and ready, but roughly they are the same sort of distance as a standard Ironman. Um, often, however, though the bike course is, is slightly longer. So, for example, Keltman, which is a classic Scottish race, that's a 205-kilometer bike ride as opposed to 180. Uh, but but usually they're more or less around the 180-kilometer mark in terms of the bike ride. The swim tends to be 3.8k, but can be shorter because they tend to be in colder water. But the main difference with an extreme triathlon versus a normal inverted commas Ironman is the run course, which the run course classically would be large parts of it anyway off-road and also classically taking in uh, a mountain or two or three. Uh, so that's the main difference between uh, those two uh, types of events. Yeah, I, that's quite when I, when I realised I would never do the Keltman is when I, when I got off the bike in Holland and I sort of thought, would I now fancy running up Ben A? And I thought, ah, ah, no chance about that at all. <laughs> so which was the one Which was the one of those events that made you think, oh, oh, yeah, I did this all right? Well, I, I did have a little bit of a background in adventure racing and doing sort of multi-sport things and off-road type things. That was when I, 
I actually managed to win the first ever Scottish off-road triathlon championships back in 2009, uh, when no one knew about it apart from me, really. So, uh, but I still managed to win it. So that off-road element has all had always appealed. Well, for a few years, had appealed to me. Um, but Keltman 2012, in the first running of Keltman, um, I did that race. I, I did well, did very well. Uh, I had I really struggled in the swim. Uh, the swim was really really cold and shocked me. But uh, I clawed my way up the field. I managed to finish second actually. So that was that was when I've, I I thought, oh, I, I I I'm okay at this. I could maybe uh, do a bit of damage here at the front end. Uh, and that race hadn't gone perfectly. It'd gone pretty well, but I made some mistakes. So. That was when I thought I can do okay in in those type of events. But you've managed to make this your business. Um, you had a you actually had a proper job, didn't you? Do you want to explain what that was and what you were doing? <laughs> then, then, then we'll get to how you managed to make the the transition. Well, I uh, I'm, I'm a qualified Scots lawyer, so I've uh, worked as a lawyer uh, in both Scotland and and overseas. I worked in New Zealand as a lawyer. Uh, and I worked in America as a lawyer and uh, in Scotland. So what's a I'd law? A, I was a corporate lawyer primarily, but I, as you get older and older in the law, you end up doing everything really. Um, so the only thing I didn't really do was matrimonial work or any conveyancing. But other than that, I did really everything else, but primarily corporate. And I did that. I, um, and in 2005, I set up my own consultancy to do that. But like like so many people, Simon, I always had this hankering for doing more stuff outdoors that raises my heart rate, but trying to justify the whole thing to the yeah. tax man and to my, to my, to my wife and my family. So that was, uh, that was, yeah. I'd have put story. that the other way around actually, Sean, just about <laughs> your family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, true. Uh, what were you doing yeah. today, Sean? Well, I don't know, but I'm going on a race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, it's a, it's a, that work-life balance has always been tough. Yeah. And I, 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 so how do you I, do I it? Well, it's, it's it's difficult. I mean, I mean, I'd always, I'd always, well, classically, like 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 a lot of people, and this happened to me 25 years ago, uh, and people do this all the time still now. They think, right, I love mountain biking, so I'm going to be a mountain bike coach, or I'm going to do mountain bike tours, or I'm going to be a mountain bike guide. But when you try and directly engage with something that you are passionate about, and when you try and commercialize that into a business. I don't think it, it. I don't think it works. Um, certainly, coaching, for example, if you want to perform well at a, a particular sport, if you coach in it, it can be a real hindrance to your own performance. Uh, you're being responsible for other athletes and being on your feet coaching other athletes, but not doing your own specific training. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I have worked quite hard uh, in terms of positioning myself in a way that career-wise I have lots of different income sources but almost all of them relate now to outdoor sports media and sports performance um, and that's where I am now and I, I actually feel before this virus hit I, I did feel this year actually was probably the first year of my 47 years of existence that I'd actually managed to to, yeah, to get to the end of that road and think right I've now got that balance right between earning enough money not a lot but doing stuff that's fun and doing stuff that engages me mentally and physically and works well with the family uh, and lifestyle-wise. And I really felt that this year was, yeah, I'd actually reached that, yeah. Because you'd said this to me in an email that this thing, because you just mentioned, sorry, you just mentioned there not much money, but you mentioned in an email to me, and, and it resonated with me, why 
that was not desperately important. Do you just want to run run through your your theory there? Because I thought I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, sure. Well, I I, I refer to it as the offset uh, aspect of life. It's, it's, it's probably the wrong phrase. It's, it's not particularly correct, but it's it's or, or it's, it's not a, the perfect description. But what I mean by that is, time and time again, especially being a lawyer, I would see this all the time. I would see people earning and earning quite a lot of money as a lawyer quite a unique profession that, that each year you tend to get a pay increase uh, and that would just simply become part of your general e- expenses so you would take out a better higher purchase vehicle you would take out a bigger mortgage you would put your kids to a better school <laughs> i mean you know people to me were constantly spending money on things which were offsetting the negative aspects of having a job so they didn't like the job very much but it was okay because they had their three ski holidays a year, they drove their Mercedes, they had their five-bedroom house. And it always struck me from a very young age, actually, that, well, if you have a day-to-day job that doesn't have that negative aspect to it, which you actually do genuinely enjoy, then you don't need all these material things. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I have a nice lifestyle. I've, I've got a nice house, I've got a nice car, you know, I've got I've got lots of great kit as well. Uh, but I don't need that that uh, material element to my life where I need to... I need to spend money on things because I need to just, you know, and in America, they, they don't talk about salary, they talk about compensation, which I think is very apt because it's almost compensating you for the fact that your job's rubbish, uh, which, 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 which to me is just very odd. I think that's, that's completely missing the picture. Um, you know, years ago when I was working as a lawyer in New Zealand, I loved the country, but I didn't like my job. And I remember my friend saying to me, Sean, you have to get that balance right because your job is such a big part of your life. You can't just write off half your life and say, well, that's rubbish, but, that, but, but the other stuff's good. It's, you know, it's, a, it's the whole thing. It's the whole package. But what about the danger of making your hobby your business? Because then what do you do for a pastime? Do you lose the, the, the drive if it becomes a bit more of a, of a, of a, ju- a drudge, I suppose is the word I'm looking for, but it's not quite, quite right? No, that yeah, that's right. That's a very interesting question. Was there's actually a couple of things on that that I do think about quite a lot. I work with a couple of uh, very good and, and and established coaches who were former professional athletes, and I think they've had issues with that where they do have a passion for the sport, but because they are so involved in high performance sport, that passion is kind of really sort of dumbed down in them. Um, and I've seen that happen uh, quite a lot. And I think when you um, engage with a hobby like that it's it's, it can be difficult because you know you want to be passionate about something and you want to maintain that passion but when you have structure around it and accountability and and and, and all these things you can you can really lose that passion i i actually don't like to use the word passion because i think that almost implies a lack of forethought i think people get too excited with passion they get too too all crazy let's go for it i think things that you are keen on and that you enjoy and that you engage with is important but passion passion and business i don't i just don't think combined very successful. oh you get so much of that passion it's become a it's become a phrase now actually it's a bugbear of mine i saw i saw somebody yeah. tweet something i would take uh what was it now let me get this right i would take an ounce of competence for two stone of passion <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely that's a very good one i'll write that down somewhere that's good <laughs> um but but you, you you mentioned before you've got lots of different sort of income streams print photos events you, you work with sponsors got a bit of a management business on the side um along the way you you actually invented an adventure challenge do you want to tell me a little bit about that because it sounds it sounds excellent 
Yeah, that is of all the things that we've sort of planned and done uh, over the last 15, 20 years on the the outdoor adventure sports thing. I think this is the best one we've come up with, and I would like to do sort of more of it. So, um, in two thousand and eleven, uh, my auntie had been in Strathcarron Hospice, uh, so we raised funds for all that uh, for them, and we we actually devised that I think in two thousand and nine for a friend who was turning fifty, but he ended up not doing it, so we we went ahead and did it in two thousand and eleven. And it was a fairly simple thing, and I think I think that simplicity was at the heart of its appeal. So the parameters or the rules were that you had to, that you had to start with your feet in the Atlantic, you had to end with your feet in the North Sea, uh, you had to summit the most westerly Monroe, uh, Monroe on the mainland, which is in Larvin, uh, which is sorry Larvin in Noidart, and and then summit the most easterly Monroe on the mainland, which is Mount Keen. And in between, and, and and the whole thing under your own steam. So it was a fantastic challenge that we did, and we we had to start with in terms of tides and things like that and light. So we started, well, we we assembled at Kinloch Huron in the cars. We kayaked to Barrisdale Bay, set up camp there very briefly, and then started at nine o'clock at night. And there was three of us at that point, and up Larvin, back down, then kayaked back out in the dark, and then a huge big cycle ride from Kinloch Huron all the way to Aboyne. So that was over, you know, into the Monoliths, Cairngorms, over the Lech. Oh, it's f- absolutely fabulous. Um, and then to Aboyne, and then mountain bikes up Glen Tanner, the last little bit on foot up Mount Keen, back down to Aboyne, and then uh, road bikes from Aboyne into Stonehaven Harbour in the North Sea. And it was such a fantastic celebration of Scotland and the landscape and and the weather and the way things changed. And we almost hit a wild boar coming out of Kilnock Hoo, and that was a particular highlight. It was unbelievable. Uh, and then we saw a pine martin over in Deeside. And, but it was quite funny, Simon, I must say, at the end of it all, well, the actual challenge was uh, to do it un- under 24 hours, and I managed it in 23. And as we got to Stonehaven, um, the other two guys I'd been with had actually dropped out a bit earlier on. But I'd had, I'd had people along the way helping me uh, in terms of a peloton on the bike particularly. But we got to Stonehaven, and there was a few friends and family there and all clapping and stuff. And my wife, there was this old guy there, and he came up to my wife and said, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And Bex, my wife, spoke to him and told him about, oh, this guy started 24 hours ago on the West Coast and in Noida and all this. And the guy was nodding his head for about half a minute, as Bex explained. And at the end of it, he said, why would anyone want to do that? <laughs> Which I thought was very, very... Oh, I'm sure a lot of people would want to do that. I mean, did it... Well, exactly. Was this something you, you just did with a bunch of, bunch of mates? It was not something you decided, oh, we can make that into an event? Well... We did it with a bunch of mates. Obviously, we devised it in 2009. I mean, I think Monroe's are a great um, target to uh, you know, build things around. We, we, obviously, you've got the most northerly one in Ben Hope and the ones in the south, closer to here, Ben Lomond and things like that. Um, and you could make a nice little circuit. And our friend was having this 50th birthday in 2009, so we looked at it then, but, then we, I, I, but he didn't do it, as I say. So we kept talking about it for the, uh, for the next few years, and we thought we must do it. And we've done it. And actually, this year, Doogie Vipond was all set to do it in July for Doddy Weir's charity uh, at the start of July. And that was going to be one of our big, uh, actually was going to be our, our biggest media project this year. And Doogie was very excited about it. But obviously, with the virus happening now, uh, mm. that's not happening. Hopefully, next year, you know, we do it. But of all, all, all the things I've done, Simon, um, that is the thing where I think you, know, you would get some fantastic uh, footage on the on the drones and and uh, oh, it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful uh, d- occasion, and uh, I'd love to do it again, actually. So and the name it. we called it the West to East Beast. That's what we called it. Uh, so uh, 
you know, uh, it was pretty simple. There's also a bit of route choice. What we did is we got towards, we came down uh, just before Spring Bridge and went sort of down south to uh, Spring Bridge, but you could go across Loch Ness and things like that. Mm. You could swim across Loch Ness. You could, you know, there's so there's a few actual route choices which which add to the excitement of the of the challenge. I think so. Uh, yeah, hopefully that'll catch on. And uh, if Diggy does it next year, I think that'll have a bit of traction. And uh, yeah, it was fabulous. We should mention for people who are outside Scotland who don't know who Doogie Vipond is uh, and who are not Deacon Blue fans, as well as being the drummer <laughs> of that band, he is the presenter of the Adventure Show, which I've worked on and I have filmed you two together because oh, a few years back now he uh, entered a. Um, a fairly extreme half uh, triathlon, half Ironman distance that involved a, a climb up the summit of Ben Nevis. And I remember filming you with him swimming uh, just beforehand. Uh, this was one of your coaching experiences. You said you haven't done a lot of a lot of coaching, uh, but you did coach him. And so how, how did that go? Were you happy to do that? And uh, were you happy with the results? Because I thought he did fantastic. Yeah, that, that, that was great fun. I mean, it's, it's great fun to work with Doogie. Um, he's he's probably, I mean, I, I've, I've obviously worked uh, a little bit in high performance sport and, and I've met talented people, but he is probably the most talented person I've ever met, but not at swimming. Uh, <laughs> have to say, uh, his, his strengths lie elsewhere. And uh, it might have been a bit of a question of the blind leading the blind, but um, his swimming, it was a struggle, but... It was a great event. He did the Braveheart Triathlon, as you say, Simon, uh, which is an extreme half Iron Man with a run at the end of Ben Nevis. And he was last in the swim by probably 10 minutes. Uh, and I was so impressed that he, that, that, you know, he still got it done and uh, out he came and he soldiered on. And it was a great project. I, I really enjoyed working with him. And he, I'd, I'd said to him before, um, I said to him before about all this stuff, I said, look, Doogie, this is not about, it is about an event, but really it's about your life and a, and a lifestyle change that allows you to be able to do stuff. He lives actually not far from me. and I'm in Dollar. He's in Bridge of Allen. And I said, I said to him, Doogie, once you get fit enough, we'll do the trans Ocals run, which is a run from his house to my house uh, over the Ocals. And it's, it takes about three hours and you need a bit of fitness. It's, it's not gargantuan, but it, but it is a, a, a tough run, but it's a fantastic run. Uh, and I said, that's what it's all about, Doogie. And we actually did it. And so his event uh, at Braveheart was in September. And we did that run in July. And he stopped halfway. And, and, he, I, and he said to me, Sean, you've been going on about this for ages, about this lifestyle change. I now see what you mean. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Able to do this sort of stuff on our doorstep. Uh, so the whole process uh, he enjoyed. And he was, he's been hankering to, to, to do an event ever since. And um you know, he really harps back to the Braveheart days when he was fit and everything. So, uh, yeah. And then this, this, that you just touched on it there, um, the question of, well, why do you do this? You know, what are you trying to prove and to whom you tend to get? <laughs> you tend to get asked by people who don't do these sort of things. And you touched on it there. You just said that fitness to that 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 proves your body is working in a certain way. Is that is that what it means for you? Yeah, I I think it's just a great way to live life on 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 Earth. Uh, you know, it really is just the actually Doogie's got a great phrase, which uh, it is his phrase. He's got copyright on it, I think. But it's, he talks about um, he talks about pushing your limits in landscapes that have none, and it's 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 a great phrase. And and 
all the all, all the events are lovely. They're fantastic byproducts. They're very enjoyable. But for me, they're not really what it's all about. It's it's about being fit enough to get up the hills for a run at lunchtime, you know, up to Upper Monroe even or whatever. Or or if you've got a friend you haven't seen for a while who's, who's into road cycling and says, I want to go for a 100-mile cycle around the west coast of Scotland, you know, you can do this sort of stuff. It just allows you to, to engage with life and landscape and people in a way that is, to me, second to none. And I, I, it is obvious when I, you know, I still meet lawyer friends and all that and they're, they're talking about their mergers and acquisitions and their their faces are falling into their soup. And then when you start talking about going for a cycle ride or a run, they, they, they suddenly waking up. You know, that's what engages people. That's what, um, not everyone, but most people want to do some sort of activity. Um, and I think being able to do that and, and, and you know, in and, and, and a sort of wide range of things. Yes, I can I can do a 100-mile battery, but I can also do a 10-mile battery with my wife or whatever. So that, to me, is what it's all about. And also for, also for our, our daughter, you know, exposing her to that environment. It's great to be around people that are not not super men and super women, but they're, they're fit and healthy, and they still enjoy the beer, but they have that, they have that energy about them, Simon, which is infectious. Uh, so how important is winning? Well, that's a that's a good question. Well, it, <laughs> I'll be very honest here. It depends. It depends on the event, and it depends who's who's beating you. <laughs> uh, I find as I get older, sometimes the last few years I've been unhappy. If I'm being honest, with people that have beaten me sometimes, and that's that's but that's quite pathetic. But in many ways, but you know, I think oh, that's, I've not done myself justice there. That person shouldn't really have beaten me. But but I'm sure there's lots of occasions where people think, oh my God, Sean McFarlane's beating me. Uh, so <laughs> you know, they're um, it it swings and roundabouts. I, you know, it depends on the event. It, 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 you know, to me, it depends on the event. I don't look at an event now. Again, going back to TED in Sweden, I uh, I've never really looked at an event where I think right, I'm the favourite to win this. But I remember with TED in Sweden when I saw him all those years ago, he was always the favourite, and I thought that's not a nice position to be in because you can only be disappointed. And I, I remember thinking then. Not that I could be because I'm not talented enough at all, but I thought I wouldn't ever want to be like that because, you know, you're there to be shot at. And, you know, uh, I've, I'm always a, I sort of also ran. I'm always a sort of not an outsider, but if I win it, it's, it's maybe not, it's not unexpected, but it's all right. Okay. He's won it. So it's a nice position to be in. And I've never been the favorite for any race, I don't think. Um, and that's quite enjoyable when you do win it uh, in those circumstances. So winning is important. You know, I've won enough in the past. I feel as though I don't need to prove myself. That's quite nice. But, but uh, winning, my days of winning stuff, uh, I think, are, 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 are on the way, certainly. So uh, it's not but that important. Is it, is it important, because this is going to lead us on to just sort of probably our final area of conversation, it, it, how important is it is winning uh, to sponsors? Because it's, I know sponsorship is one of your income streams, as it were, um, yeah. or maybe kit streams. I don't know how it works. Just explain to me how sponsorship works, or at least worked before the coronavirus because goodness knows how it's going to work after that because i suspect an awful lot of brands might be struggling but but you, what's your take on that yeah well I, i've worked i mean i i have worked very successfully with sponsors over the years um and i'm actually in a sports management company that i do a little bit of managing some athletes so I, I i talk to them a lot about sponsorship and about how to do that effectively what far too many people do is they work with sponsors or, or, they, or, or they approach them and, and, and they get a bit of a bite and they get a bit of kit and then they sail off into the sunset and and, and uh, they don't speak to the sponsor again. So what I do, and it's worked well, is that if I've got an active piece of 
media or something that I know I can put a product or something in quite quickly and it needs to be authentic so it's not an advert. If it's an advert, people switch off and as do editors as well. So if I've got an active bit of media that I can fold in a product, especially the new sponsor, then I, I make sure I do that and I, I make contact with a sponsor, uh, a new sponsor and go back to them quickly with a follow-up and that always works and that's led to me over the last really 10 years now, working with a range of sponsors. Uh, some come and go, but I've had some for all that time. Uh, and yeah, they give you lots of kit. That's their default. They throw kit at you, but they do sometimes pay as well, which is good. Uh, but kit's the default. In terms of how you, uh, in terms of performance with uh, sponsors, I, I, I remind athletes that look, performance is important and it, it, it does affect your um, your credibility as, as an athlete and I guess and even me as a journalist and stuff as well but it's your profile which is important so that's the key thing your performance helps your profile but it's not the be on end all and in some occasions your performance I think can take you away from sponsors I, I've been I, I actually work with a nutrition company who sponsored Mo Farah and I, and, and I keep trying to say to them I'm not sure that's a great idea because the mass market is someone trying to do a 10k in under an hour you know, more uh, far I can do. You don't you, want to be you, seen you know, as too elite. Well, that's you know, or people don't want to be people that are going to buy that product and say, okay, they support more far. But what does more far know about me? What mm. does more far understand about my plight? And that's the mass market. And so, more and more these days, sponsors are realizing that it's a pyramid, and actually, the bottom of the pyramid or the triangle, rather, you know, that's the big fat part, and that's the mass market, and it's you know, that's eighty-five percent of a room. Uh, so actually just obviously you get credibility by sponsors or, or sponsors get credibility by sponsoring uh, top top athletes that are winning iron men all over the world whatever but they also get a lot of credibility and they get a lot of sales when they back people that are real life people and that's i guess where i come in a little bit you know yeah i've i've won a few races and all that but i still like a beer and i'm, I'm a fairly normal average athlete in many ways so um that's where i've been successful with sponsors and uh it's it's good and uh yeah i get i i uh, actually i work with some young athletes who are full-time athletes and they're in awe of my garage uh and my kit collection <laughs> so uh, it's it is impressive but it's but once you open the door with sponsors properly it is a bit of a tsunami that that, 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 uh, that flows through so yeah it's good. um uh, how 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 are you managing now on the coronavirus? Uh, I mean, you presumably had a full calendar of this year coming up. Uh, what what happens? Uh, partly, I suppose, with those sponsors, are they going? Oh, what are you going to be doing, Sean? Uh, and and also, how are you managing to stay fit? And what does the race season look like? I suppose it doesn't look like anything right now. Yeah, well, it, I meant to be on a plane as we speak, Simon, to Cyprus uh, to do a new event there. Uh, to, it, 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 was a, it was a test event of a of a full distance extreme Ironman. Uh, I was meant to be doing it on Saturday. So, yeah, my my schedule this year was pretty exciting. I was in Cyprus now and then also in October for the actual running of that event uh, for the first time. And then uh, Is that in August. Is the Cyprus thing off? Well, definitely off. Well, Cyprus now is obviously off in May, the test event. Um, oh, yeah. And I had Sweden in August. Uh, that's off. But the Cyprus event end of October is actually on uh, as it currently stands. And I'm all booked up and everything. Uh, let's hope we can go. I mean, um, my race season is fairly decimated. I, I, actually, Cyprus is the only one I've got in. Um, so, so how are you see- training? Well, training, I'm training because I live in a fabulous part of, of the world and I have great access to hills or 
actually mountains really uh, and roads and everything. I've been open water swimming. Oops, I shouldn't say that probably. Uh, but I was open water swimming in a pond, uh, <laughs> which is about five meters. Uh, Five minutes you know, for me, so I was there on my own, and um, you know I've been doing that uh, a little bit, and I've been getting out, I've been getting out, but I've, I ha- but I haven't Simon got the race focus, yeah. uh, which which I struggle with. I mean, actually, it's interesting because I've been emailing friends about it, and some have been coming back saying yes, I'm the same, Sean. Others have been coming and saying no, I don't need that, I I, I don't need that race focus, I, I I can motivate myself. I can't, I I struggle with that a little bit, and I'm you know I've been doing. A decent amount of training, uh, but that race, that goal. It, well, that goal is, is it's not just physical; that it's, it's also mental. Mm. Uh, I'm struggling a little bit with the lack of that because ah, goal I do. Yeah, I need a target, and I've had targets for the last twenty years, and uh, this is the first year where I haven't got anything until end of October, and even then, I don't know if that's going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be cautious to say that. I'm struggling. It's been the best weather I can remember in April, May ever. It's been incredible. Um, I've got all this fancy kit, obviously, to go on. Uh, you know, I'm not short of options and time to do stuff. So, and I, and I am getting out, but I would like to have something uh, to target. That that's what I'm missing. I, and actually, friends, I, I'm not great on my own all the time, especially road biking. I find road biking. I need a chum or two, not to talk, 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 but just for sort of. Just you know, just just companionship, uh, and I find that a little bit difficult. So um, yeah, but it, it, all things considered, Simon, in terms of what's happening in the world, uh, life ain't bad. It's fine. That's Sean McFarlane, and I really hope the Cyprus event can be run. Not because I'm taking part, because it'll mean we're all past the worst of this virus by then. If you've enjoyed this, please consider supporting the podcast with a micro donation. There's a button in the show notes and on the program website to buy me a virtual coffee and that will go towards the hosting costs. I'm Simon Willis. Thanks for listening. Bye.